Chapter Twenty Nine of the Giant's Robe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Giant's Robe by F. Anstey. On board the Coromandel. It was quite dark the next morning when the hammering of the boots outside the door roused Mark to a miserable sense of the unwelcome duty before him. He dressed by candlelight and, groping his way down the silent staircase, hunted about in the shuttered coffee-room for the coat and hat he had left there, and went shivering out into the main street, from which he turned up the hill towards the hoe. The day had dawned by that time, and the sky was a gloomy grey, varied towards the horizon by stormy gleams of yellow. The prim, clean streets were deserted, save by an occasional workman, going to his labours with a heavy tramp echoing on the wet flags. Mark went along by terraces of lodging-houses, where the placards of apartments had an especially forlorn and futile look against the drawn blinds, and from the areas of which the exhalations, confined during the night, rose in perceptible contrast with the fresh morning air. Then he found himself upon the hoe, with its broad asphalt promenades and rows of hotels and terraces, rain-washed, silent, and cold, and descending the winding series of steps he made his way to the Millbay Pier and entered the customs-house gates. Waiting about the wharf was a little knot of people, apparently bound on much the same errand as himself, although in far higher spirits. Their cheerfulness, probably a trifle aggravated by the consciousness of being up so early, jarred upon him, and he went on past them to the place where two small steamers were lying. "'One of them's going out to the Coromandel presently,' said a sailor, in answer to his question. "'You better wait till the agent's down, or you may be took out to the wrong ship, for there's two expected, but they ain't neither of em in yet. Ah!' as a gun was heard outside. "'That'll be the Coromandel signalling now.' "'That ain't her,' said another man, who was leaning over the side of one of the tenders. "'That's for t'other one, the emu. The Coromandel's a three-master, she is.' "'Tom knows the Coromandel, don't you, Tom? Let Tom alone for knowing the Coromandel,' said the first sailor, a remark which apparently was rich in hidden suggestion, for they both laughed very heartily. Presently the agent appeared, and Mark, having satisfied himself that there was no danger of being taken out to the wrong vessel, for, much as he dreaded meeting Holroyd, he dreaded missing him even more, went on board one of the tenders, which soon after began to move out into the dull green water. Now that he was committed to the ordeal, his terrors rose again. He almost wished that he had made a mistake after all, and was being taken out to meet the wrong P and O. The horrible fear possessed him that Holroyd might in some way have learned his secret on the voyage home. Suppose, for instance, a fellow-passenger possessed a copy of Illusion, and chanced to lend it to him. What should he do if his friend were to meet him with a stern and contemptuous repulse, rendering all conciliation out of the question? Tortured by speculations like these, he kept nervously away from the others on board, and paced restlessly up and down near the bows. He saw nothing consciously then, but afterwards every detail of those terrible ten minutes came back to him vividly, down to the lights still hanging in the rigging of the vessels in harbour, 
and the hoarse cries of the men in a brown-sailed lugger gliding past them out to sea out by the bar there was a light haze in the mists of which lay the long black hull of the coromandel and to this the tender worked round in a tedious curve preparatory to lying alongside as they passed under the stern mark nerved himself to look amongst the few figures in the gangway for the face he feared but holroyd was not amongst them after several unsuccessful attempts of a lascar to catch the rope thrown from the tender accompanied by some remarks in a foreign language on his part which may have been offered in polite excuse for his awkwardness the rope was secured at length the tender brought against the vessel's side and the gangway lashed across then followed a short delay during which the p and o captain in rough weather costume conversed with the agent across the rails with a certain condescension thick as a hedge outside mark heard him say haven't turned in all night what are we all waiting for now here quartermaster just ask the doctor to step forward will you somehow at the mention of the doctor holroyd's allusions to his illness recurred to mark's mind and hopes he dared not confess even to himself so base and vile were they rose in his heart here's the doctor clean bill of health eh doctor asked the agent and mark held his breath for the answer all well on board tumble in then and there was an instant rush across the gangway mark followed some of the crowd down into the saloon where the steward was laying breakfast but he could not see holroyd there either and for a few minutes was pent up in a corner in the general bustle which prevailed there were glad greetings going on all around him confused questions and answers rapid directions to which no one had any time to attend and now and then an angry exclamation over the eagerly read letters and where's mother living now we've lost that seven forty express all through that infernal tender look here don't take that bag up on deck to get wet d'ye hear jolly to be back in the old place again eh i wish i'd never left it that scoundrel has gone and thrown all those six houses into chancery and so on those of the passengers who were not talking or reading being engaged in filling up the telegraph forms brought on board for their convenience mark extricated himself from the hubbub as soon as he could and got hold of the steward there was a gentleman on board of the name of holroyd he seemed well enough as far as the steward knew though a bit poorly when he first came aboard to be sure he was in his berth just then getting his things together to go ashore but he'd be up on deck directly half sick and half glad at this additional delay mark left the saloon and lingered listlessly about above watching the lascars hauling up baggage from the hold they would have been interesting enough to him at any other time with their seamed bilious complexions of every degree of swarthiness set off by the touches of colour in their sashes and head coverings their strange cries and still more uncouth jocularity but he soon tired of them and wandered aft where the steamer chairs their usefulness at an end for that voyage were huddled together dripping and forlorn on the damp red deck he was still standing by them idly turning over the labels attached to their backs and reading the names thereon without the slightest real curiosity when he heard a well-remembered voice behind him crying 
"'Mark, my dear fellow, so you've come after all. "'I was half afraid you wouldn't think it worth your while. "'I can't tell you how glad I am to see you.' "'And he turned with a guilty start to face the man he had wronged. "'Evidently,' thought Mark, "'he knows nothing yet, or he wouldn't meet me like this.' "'And he gripped the cordial hand held out to him with convulsive force. "'His face was white and his lips trembled. "'He could not speak. "'Such unexpected emotion on his part touched and gratified Holroyd, "'who patted him on the shoulder affectionately. "'It's all right, old boy, I understand,' he said. "'So you did think I was gone after all. "'Well, this is a greater pleasure to me than ever it can be to you.' "'I never expected to see you again,' said Mark, as soon as he could speak. "'Even now I can hardly believe it.' "'I'm quite real, however,' said Holroyd, laughing. "'There's more of me now than when they carried me on board from Colombo. "'Don't look so alarmed. The voyage has brought me round again. I'm my old self again.' As a matter of fact, there was a great change in him. His bearded face, still burnt by the Ceylon sun, was lined and wasted. His expression had lost its old dreaminess, and when he did not smile, was sterner and more set than it had been. His manner, as Mark noticed later, had a new firmness and decision. He looked a man who could be mercilessly severe in a just cause, and even his evident affection was powerless to reassure Mark. The hatches had by this time been closed over the hold again, and the crane unshipped. The warning bell was ringing for the departure of the tender, though the passengers still lingered till the last minute, as if a little reluctant, after all, to desert the good ship that had been their whole world of late. The reigning beauty of the voyage, who was to remain with the vessel until her arrival at Gravesend, was receiving her last compliments during prolonged and complicated leave-takings, in which, however, the exhilaration of most of her courtiers, now that their leave or furlough was really about to begin, was too irrepressible for sentiment. A last delay at the gangway, where the captain and ship's officers were being overwhelmed with thanks and friendly good-byes, and then the deck was cleared at last, the gangway taken in and the rail refastened and as the tender steamed off, all the jokes and allusions which formed the accumulated wit of the voyage flashed out with a brief and final brilliancy, until the hearty cheering given and returned drowned them for ever. On the tender, such acquaintances as Holroyd had made during the voyage gave Mark no chance of private conversation with him, and even when they had landed and cleared the custom-house, Mark made no use of his opportunity. He knew he must speak soon but he could not tell him just then, and accordingly put off the evil hour by affecting an intense interest in the minor incidents of the voyage, and in Vincent's experiences of a planter's life. It was the same in the hotel coffee-room, where some of the Coromandel's passengers were breakfasting near them, and the conversation became general. After breakfast, however, Mark proposed to spend some time in seeing the place, an arrangement which he thought would lead the way to confession. But Holroyd would not hear of this. He seemed possessed by a feverish impatience to get to London without delay, and very soon they were pacing the Plymouth railway platform together, waiting for the up-train, Mark oppressed by the gloomy conviction that if he did not speak soon, the favourable moment would pass away, never to return. 
"'Where do you think of going when you first get in?' he asked, in dread of the answer. "'I don't know,' said Holroyd. "'The Great Western, I suppose, is the nearest.' "'You mustn't go to an hotel,' said Mark. "'Won't you come to my rooms? "'I don't live with my people any longer, you know, and I can easily put you up.' He was thinking that this arrangement would give him a little more time for his confession. "'Thanks,' said Holroyd, gratefully. "'It's very kind of you to think of that old fellow. "'I will come to you, then. "'But there is a house I must go to as soon as we get in, "'if you won't mind, if I run away for an hour or two, will you?' "'Mark remembered what Caffin had said. "'There'll be plenty of time for that tomorrow, won't there?' he said nervously. "'No,' said Holroyd impatiently. "'I can't wait. I daren't. "'I have let so much time go by already.' "'You will understand when I tell you all about it, Mark. "'I can't rest till I know whether there is still a chance of happiness left for me, "'or or whether I have come too late and the dream is over.' "'In that letter, which had fallen into Caffin's hands, "'Holroyd had told Mabel the love he had concealed so long. "'He had begged her not to decide too hastily. "'He would wait any time for her answer,' he said, "'if she did not feel able to give it at once.' and in the meantime she should be troubled by no further importunities on his part. This was not, perhaps, the most judicious promise to make. He had given it from an impulse of consideration for her, being well aware that she had never looked upon him as a possible lover, and that his declaration would come upon her with a certain shock. Perhaps, too, he wanted to leave himself a margin of hope, as long as possible, to make his exile endurable since for months, if no answer came back to him, he could cheat himself with the thought that such silence was favourable in itself. But even when he came to regret his promise, he shrank from risking all by breaking it. Then came his long illness, and the discovery at Neuro Elia. For the first time he thought that there might be other explanations of the delay. And while he was writing the letter which had come to Mark, he resolved to make one more appeal to Mabel, since it might be that his first by some evil chance had failed to reach her. That second appeal, however, was never made. Before he could do more than begin it, the fever he had never wholly shaken off seized him again, and laid him helpless, until, when he was able to write once more, he was already on his way to plead for himself. But the dread lest his own punctilious folly and timidity had closed the way to his heart's desire had grown deeper and deeper, and he felt an impulse now which was stronger than his natural reserve to speak of it to someone. "'Yes,' he continued, "'she may have thought I was drowned, as you did. Perhaps she has never dreamed how much she is to me. If I could only hope to tell her that, even now—' "'Do you mind telling me her name?' said Mark, with a deadly foreboding of what was coming. "'Did I ever speak of the Langtons to you?' said Holroyd. "'I think I must have done. She is a Miss Langton. Mabel, her name is.' He dwelt on the name with a lover's tenderness. "'Some day, if—if if it is all well, you may see her, I hope. Oddly enough, I believe she has heard your name rather often.' She has a small brother who used to be in your form at St. Peter's. Did I never tell you? Never, said Mark. He felt that fate was too hard for him. He had honestly meant to confess all up to that moment. 
he had thought to found his strongest plea for forbearance on his approaching marriage how could he do that now what mercy could he expect from a rival he was lost if he was mad enough to arm holroyd with such a weapon he was lost in any case for it was certain that the weapon would not lie hidden long there were four days still before the wedding time enough for the mind to explode what could he do how could he keep the other in the dark or get rid of him before he could do any harm and then caffyn's suggestions came back to him was it possible to make use of caffyn's desire for a travelling companion and turn it to his own purpose if caffyn was so anxious to have holroyd with him in the lakes why not let him it was a desperate chance enough but it was the only one left to him if it failed it would ruin him but that would certainly happen if he let things take their course if it succeeded mabel would at least be his his resolution was taken in an instant and carried out with a strategy that gave him a miserable surprise at finding himself so thorough a judas by the way he said i've just thought of something harold caffin is a friend of mine i know he wants to see you again and he could tell you all you want to hear about about the langtons i've heard him mention them often enough you see you don't even know where they are yet i'll wire and ask him to meet us at my room shall i that's a capital idea cried holroyd caffin is sure to know do it at once like a good fellow you stay here then and look out for the train said mark as he hurried to the telegraph office leaving holroyd thinking how thoughtful and considerate his once selfish friend had become mark sent the telegram which ended he knows nothing yet i leave him to you when he returned he found that holroyd had secured an empty compartment in the train which was preparing to start and mark got in with a heavy apprehension of the danger of a long journey alone with holroyd he tried to avoid conversation by sheltering himself by a local journal while at every stoppage he prayed that a stranger might come to his rescue he read nothing until a paragraph copied from a london literary paper caught his eye we understand the paragraph ran that the new novel by the author of illusion mr cyril ernstone or rather mr mark ashburn as he has now declared himself will be published early in the present spring and it is rumoured that the second work will show a marked advance on its predecessor it was merely the usual puff preliminary though mark took it as a prediction and at any other time would have glowed with anticipated triumph now it only struck him with terror was it in holroyd's paper too suppose he asked to look at mark's and saw it there and questioned him as of course he would what should he say thinking to avoid this as far as possible he crumpled up the tell-tale paper and hurled it out of the window but this act had precisely the opposite effect for holroyd took it as an indication that his companion was ready for conversation and put down the paper he had been pretending to read mark he began with a slight hesitation and with his first words mark knew that the question was coming which he dreaded more than anything he had no notion how he should reply to it beyond a general impression that he would have to lie and lie hard mark said holroyd again i didn't like to worry you about it before i thought perhaps you would speak of it first but 
but have you never heard anything more of that ambitious attempt of mine at a novel you needn't mind telling me i-i can't tell you mark said looking away out of the window i don't expect anything good said holroyd i never thought why should i be such a humbug i did think sometimes more lately perhaps that it wouldn't be an utter failure i see i was wrong well if i was ambitious it was rather for her than myself and if she cares for me what else matters to either of us tell me all about it you you remember what happened to the first volume of the french revolution began mark go on said holroyd it-the book yours i mean said mark he could not remember the original title was burnt where at the office did they write and tell you so had they read it mark felt he was among pitfalls not at the office he said at my rooms my old rooms it came back then yes it came back that there was no letter with it the girl at the lodgings found the manuscript lying about she she burnt it the lies sprang in ready succession from his brain at the critical moment without any other preparation than the emergency as lies did with mark ashburn till lately he had hoped that the truth might come and he loathed himself now for this fresh piece of treachery but it had saved him for the present and he could not abandon it i thought it would at least have been safe with you said holroyd if you-no my dear fellow i didn't mean to reproach you i can see how cut up you are about it and after all it was only a rejected manuscript the girl only hastened its course a little carlyle rewrote his work but then i'm not carlyle we won't say anything any more about it eh old fellow it's only one dream over mark was seized with a remorse which almost drove him to confess all and take the consequences but holroyd had sunk back to his position by the window again and there was a fixed frown on his face which although it only arose from painful thought effectually deterred mark from speaking he felt now that everything depended on caffin he sat looking furtively at the other now and then and thinking what terrible reproaches those firm lips might utter how differently the sad kind eyes might regard him before long and once more he longed for a railroad crash which would set him free from his tangled life the journey ended at last and they drove down to south audley street vincent was very silent in spite of his philosophical bearing he felt the blow deeply he had come back with ideas of a possible literary career before him and it was hard to resign them all at once it was rather late in the afternoon when they arrived and caffin was there to receive them he was delighted to welcome holroyd and his cordiality restored the other to cheerfulness it is so pleasant to find that one is not forgotten and so rare when vincent had gone upstairs to see his sleeping-room caffin turned to mark there was a kind of grin on his face and yet a certain admiration too i got your telegram he said so so you've brought yourself to part with him after all i thought over what you said returned mark and-and he told me something which would make it very awkward and-and painful for him and for myself too if he remained you haven't told him anything then still nothing said mark then said caffin i think i shall not be alone at waswater after all 
if you'll only let me manage was mark at all surprised at the languid harold caffyn exerting himself in this way if he was he was too grateful for the phenomenon to care very much about seeking to explain it caffyn was a friend of his he had divined that holroyd's return was inconvenient very likely he had known of vincent's hopeless attachment for mabel and he was plainly anxious to get a companion at the lakes any one of these was motive enough soon after holroyd joined them in the sitting-room caffyn after more warm congratulations and eager questioning broached the wastwater scheme you may as well he concluded london's beastly at this time of year you're looking as if the voyage hadn't done you much good too and it will be grand in the mountains just now come with me by the early train to-morrow you've no packing to do i'm sure we shall pull together all right i'm sure of that said vincent and if i had nothing to keep me in town but i've not seen the langtons yet you know and um, by the by you can tell me where i shall find them now i suppose they have not moved now i've got you laughed caffyn if the langtons are the only obstacle you can't go and see them for the very good reason that they're away abroad somewhere are they all there every one of em even the father i fancy just now do you know when they're likely to be back i haven't heard said caffyn calmly they must come back soon you see for the lovely mabel's wedding mark held his breath as he listened what was caffyn going to say next vincent's face altered suddenly then mabel miss langton is going to be married he asked in a curiously quiet tone rather said caffyn brilliant match in its way i understand not much money on his side but one of the coming literary fellows and all that kind of thing you know just the man for that sort of girl didn't you know about it no said holroyd uneasily he was standing with his elbow on the mantelpiece with his face turned from the other two i didn't know what is his name upon my soul i forget heard it somewhere ashburn you don't happen to know it do you i cried mark shrinking no i-i haven't heard well continued caffyn it isn't of much consequence is it i shall hit upon it soon i dare say they say she's deucedly fond of him though can't fancy disdainful miss mabel condescending to be deucedly fond of any one but so they tell me and i say holroyd to come back to the point is there any reason why you should stay in town none said holroyd with pain ringing in his voice none in the world why i should stay anywhere now well won't you come with me i start the first thing to-morrow it will do you good it's kind of you to ask said vincent but i can't desert ashburn in that way after he took the trouble to come down and meet me we've not seen one another for so long have we mark caffyn smiled in spite of himself why didn't he tell you he said he's arranged to go abroad himself in a day or two vincent glanced round at mark who stood there the personification of embarrassment and shame i see he said with a change in his voice i shall only be in the way then mark said nothing he could not well caffyn i'll come with you the lakes will do as well as any other place for the short time i shall be in england then you haven't come home for good inquired caffyn for good no not exactly he replied bitterly 
Plantation life has unsettled me, you see. I shall have to go back to it.' "'To Ceylon?' cried Mark, with hopes that had grown quite suddenly. "'Was it? Could it be possible that the threatened storm was going to pass away? Not for a time, but altogether?' "'Anywhere,' said Holroyd. "'What does it matter?' "'There's a man I know,' observed Caffin, "'who's going out to a coffee estate somewhere in southern India. "'The Anamali Hills, I think he said. "'He was wanting someone with a little experience to go out with him the other day. "'He's a rattling good fellow, too. "'Gilroy, his name is. "'I don't know if you'd care to meet him. "'You might think it good enough to join him, at all events, for a trial.' "'Yes,' said Holroyd listlessly. I may as well see him. Well, said Caffin, he's at Liverpool just now, I believe. I can write to him and tell him about you, and ask him to come over and meet us somewhere, and then you could settle all about it, you know, if you like the look of him. It's very good of you to take all this trouble, said Vincent, gratefully. Bosh, said Caffin, using that modern form for polite repudiation of gratitude. No trouble at all. Looks rather as if I wanted to get rid of you, don't you know? "'Gilroy's going out so very soon.' "'Is he?' said Vincent. He had no suspicions. Mabel's engagement seemed only too probable, and he knew that he had never had any claim upon her. But, for all that, he had no intention of taking the fact entirely upon trust. He would not leave England till he had seen her, and learned from her own lips that he must give up hope for ever. After that, the sooner he went, the better.' "'You needn't go out with him unless you want to. "'You might join him later there, "'but of course you wouldn't take anything for granted, nothing. "'Still, if you did care to go out at once, "'I suppose you've nothing in the way of preparations to hinder you, eh?' "'No,' said Vincent. "'It would only be transferring my trunks from one ship to another. "'But I—I I don't feel well enough to go out just yet.' "'Of course not,' said Caffin. "'You must have a week or two of mountain air first. "'Then you'll be ready to go anywhere. "'But I must have you at Wastwater,' he added, "'with a laughing look of intelligence at Mark, "'whose soul rose against all this duplicity "'and subsided again. "'How wonderfully everything was working out! "'Unless some fatality interposed between then and the next morning, "'the man he dreaded would be safely buried "'in the wildest part of the Lake District.' He might even go off to India again, and never learn the wrong he had suffered. At all events, Mark was saved for a time. He was thankful, deeply thankful, now that he had resisted that mad impulse to confession. Vincent had dropped into an armchair with his back to the window, brooding over his shattered ambitions. All his proud self-confidence in his ability to win fame for the woman he loved was gone now. He felt that he had neither the strength nor the motive to try again. If, if this he had heard was true, he must be an exile, with lower aims and a blanker life than those he had once hoped for. All at once Mark, as he stood at the window with Caffin, stepped back with a look of helpless terror. "'What the deuce is it now?' said the other under his breath. Mark caught Caffin's elbow with a fierce grip. A carriage had driven up. They could see it plainly still in the afternoon light, which had only just begun to fade. "'Do you see?' muttered Mark thickly. "'She's in it. She looked up. She saw me!' Caffin himself was evidently disturbed. "'Not, 
not mabel he whispered worse it's dolly and she'll come up she'll see him the two stood there staring blankly at each other while holroyd was still too absorbed to have the least suspicion that the future happiness or misery of himself and others was trembling just there in the balance End of chapter twenty nine